So my, my very first job was I was a paper boy for the Herald Journal, the Syracuse paper. And I would come home from school every day and I would grab my paper bag. I lived in Bayberry and I would walk a couple streets down to where my sack of newspapers was waiting for me hidden under a tree. And I would get it, and I would throw it in my bag, and I'd walk back to the streets, and I'd go around, and I would deliver the newspapers every afternoon. But Sunday was like, that was the big day for the newspaper, because, of course, the Sunday paper was the biggest paper. And on Sunday mornings, I had to get up really early, because the Sunday paper came in the morning, not in the afternoon. And the way this works is, on Friday, they actually would deliver half of the newspaper to me. So the, it's called the insert. So if you remember the Sunday paper, or if you still get the Sunday paper, uh, the insert included things like real estate information and coupons. Uh, but the thing that it included that I enjoyed the most was the comic strips. And uh, I would always get those on Friday. I felt special because I was the first one to see the comic strips. And then Sunday mornings, I had to take the insert, put it inside the rest of the paper, and go around my neighborhood and deliver them. And there was one comic strip that I remember very well. I remember exactly where it was. It was on the bottom of the front page. It's the most syndicated comic strip in the world, and it's called The Family Circus. And it's just usually like a little one-window comic strip, and it's famous for different things. It's a family, a mom, a dad, four kids, and there's a couple grandparents that sometimes show up too. And there's four children. The oldest one's name is Billy, and his age, he's seven. He's perpetually seven years old. He never ages. And uh, one of the things they were famous for, one of their themes was called the dotted line theme. And the dotted line theme, they were the first ones to use this. It would show the path of one of the children uh, through the house or through the neighborhood when they were asked to do something. So here's an example of one of those. Uh, the mom says to Billy, quick, Billy, run these out to the mailbox. They need to be sent today. And Billy, like every other seven-year-old, Look at his journey all over the place. Billy goes to the sink for some reason. Billy goes and jumps on the couch where his sister is reading her book. Billy runs through the dining room. He goes up and he watches TV with his little brother for a while. Billy comes down and does all these spiral turns right before he goes out the door, runs around the dog, gets outside, runs around the lamppost a few times just in time to say to mom, too late, mommy, we just missed him. <laughs> Billy was assigned one thing to do. Get this mail out to the mailbox as soon as possible. He was assigned one thing to do, and he got busy doing a ton of other things. And he missed out on the one thing he had been asked to do. Sometimes I wonder to myself, is the church at risk of making the same mistake Billy has made in this comic strip. The one thing that we've been asked to do is the average Christian making the same mistake. Are, are you making this same mistake? So let's look in Matthew chapter 28. This is not our main text this morning, but this is our main text for this four-week series, our series called As You Go. And I'm going to read to you Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. These are not in your notes, so you need to open up your Bible or turn to it on your phone, or it'll be on the screens behind me. Beginning in verse 16, and just to give you some context, Jesus has just died and resurrected from the dead. He gathers his disciples together to give them some final instructions, okay? Soon he's going to ascend to heaven where he's going to stay seated at the right-hand side of the Father where he lives forever to make intercession for you and for me. But at this point, he's still with his disciples. These are the 40 days he spent with them after he rose from the dead. And here's what we call in Christianity the Great Commission. Look at verse 16. It says, now the 11 disciples, of course, Judas was no longer with them. Now the 11 disciples 
went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Listen, there's, there's, there's three things. We're in the introduction right now, but there's three things I want you to notice about these verses. The first thing I want you to notice is the audience. Did you see who was there? It was his 11 disciples, but in verse 17, it says that there were some who worshiped him, but there were some who what? Doubted. And he gives to both the worshipers and the doubters the exact same directive, not a different directive for the doubters, and not a different directive for the worshipers, the same to both. Now, if you're a doubter, that's comforting because that means that Jesus sees you for who you can be and he has something for you to do with your life. But if you're a worshiper, a follower of Jesus, this is actually a warning to you because what Jesus is saying is both types of people are in danger of missing out on what I'm about to say. He says to the worshiper and he says to the doubter. The second thing I want you to notice is the claim he makes in verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. What Jesus is saying here is that my work is sufficient. It's complete. The good news of the gospel that I have defeated sin, hell, death, and the enemy. I've done that. I've had victory over those things. And now the authority all belongs to me all of it, in heaven and on earth. And now God is bringing heaven and earth together to unite all things in Christ. So, Paul, so Jesus makes this tremendous claim, all authority. And now we're probably wondering, okay, so if Jesus has all the authority, surely now he's gonna send us out to like do something amazing, like to tread on serpents and to like walk on water and to all the things that he did. And in other places, he says that we will do some of those things. But look in this context, what he says next, his command. Therefore, because all authority has been given to me, because I have all authority over heaven and earth, in light of that, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I want you to notice the third thing here is the command. Now, it looks like there's two commands there, but if you study the Greek, it's not two commands. It's one command. He's given us one thing to do. Just like the mom gave Billy one thing to do, Jesus gave his disciples, his followers, one thing to do, and it's the one thing that you and I are called to do also. And it's the word make. The only verb in the Greek in this verse that's in the imperative form is the verb make. Go is better translated as, actually the most, the, the most literal translation of the verb go there is as you go from one place to another. So as you're going from church to home, make disciples. As you're going from work to home, make disciples. As you're going from your home to the gym, as you're going to the coffee house, as you're going to Target, as you're going to Wegmans, in your going, or, and here's where we get the name of our series, as you go, make disciples. Pastor, author J.D. Greer wrote this. Christ did not come to make Christians. He did not ask us to make converts. He came and he asked us to make disciples. Discipleship is not one of the church's various ministries. Let me say that again. 
Discipleship is not one of our ministries as the church. It is not something that the paid staff does. Discipleship is who we at the church are. Our, it's our very core. Another way of saying this is discipleship is our mission. It's why we're still here, to make disciples. And at Trinity, we have a mission statement, and hopefully you've heard this a little bit now, and hopefully you're beginning to memorize this, but our mission statement at Trinity is this. We're making disciples for the glory of our God and for the good of our community. That's why this church exists. Not, not even to gather on Sundays, not to run programs, not to do all the other things that we do. Those things are all important, but they're only important if they help us accomplish our greater mission of making disciples. Otherwise, we're a church like Billy, running around, doing all sorts of stuff, but not doing the one thing God has called us to do. So I want to define for you, as we introduce this series, two terms. And this is going to really help us make our way through these next four weeks. And the first thing that we need to define up front is the word discipleship. What is discipleship? And I'm going to give you a definition. It is not the most theologically robust definition of discipleship you're ever going to hear or see, but it's a definition of discipleship that helps me visualize what it looks like, okay? And here's what discipleship is. Discipleship is moving from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every area of your life, changing what you love and how you live. Let me say it again. Discipleship is moving from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every, in every area of your life, changing what you love and how you live. Now, some quick things I need you to notice in this definition. The first key word here is moving. Discipleship is movement. It's not stagnant. If you're stagnant, you're not a disciple. Discipleship is movement and it's progress and it's a process. Discipleship is not an event. It's not a one-time raise my hand and pray a prayer and commit my life to Jesus. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is moving. It's ongoing. It's a process. Second thing is that it's moving from unbelief to belief. Discipleship is not first and foremost changing in behavior. It's first and foremost changing in what I believe, what I believe about God, what I believe about Jesus, what I believe about this world. And so it's not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. It's belief, and it starts in the heart. Third thing here is it's moving from unbelief to belief in what? In myself? No, in the gospel, in the gospel, the most central thing to this church and to all of Christian, Christianity is the gospel, which is the good news that God is restoring creation and rescuing humanity in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And I just want to say, pause and say, there's all sorts of counterfeit gospels out there right now being preached. It's important for us to understand the true gospel, which focuses on Jesus' work. Here's the next thing in the definition worth noticing. In every area of your life, there's not a single arena of your life, whether it's your work, whether it's your play, your recreation, your relationships, the gospel wants to inform and intrude and invade and change every area of your life, which brings us to the next word, change. Discipleship, the real, measure, real measurable change is always the result. Someone can't say, I'm a disciple, if there's no change in their life, if there's no growth. If there's no maturing, you might be showing up at church, you might be going through the routine, but where's the change? And then the last thing we have to notice in this definition is this, it changes what we love and then how we live. And it has to be in that order. First, your heart has to be changed, 
so that then your life can be changed. If you try to change your life before your heart's changed, you'll be the most exhausted, miserable, joyless, religious person in the world. Because here's what the gospel does. It doesn't just give us a new list of commands. It gives us a new heart. And so Jesus doesn't just say, go do these things. Here's what else he does. He gives you the very desires to do those things. You and I don't naturally possess those desires. And that's why salvation is a supernatural miracle, the regeneration of the heart. Okay, so that's discipleship. Now let's define one more thing. How do we help our friends do this? How do we make disciples? And I want to give you a very simple, again, not the most theologically thorough definition, but I think this will help us in this series. How do we make disciples? It's very simple. Ready? Two things. Number one, live a life worth sharing. Number two, share it generously and intentionally. Okay? That's it. That's making disciples. Live a life worth sharing and then share it generously and intentionally. And here's the question we're going to answer this morning as we look at Luke chapter 5. What does a life worth sharing look like? Okay? So if it starts with living a life worth sharing, what does that look like? What does a life worth sharing look like? Here's another way of asking that same question. What does a disciple look like? And we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, and uh, these are in your notes now, beginning in verse 1. This is back towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 5, I'm reading to you from the ESV. It says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. Now, if the fishermen were washing their nets in the morning, what's that mean? It means they were fishing all night. Now, those of you who like to fish nowadays, it's a pretty relaxing deal for the most part. Just go out, sit on a dock, or sit in a boat, just, just kind of cast into the water, and just, it's relaxing to the point of being boring, if I'm honest. It's a little bit boring. But, uh, no, uh, but then there's a type of fishing that's not boring. And these are the things like you watch on TV, on the Discovery Channel, these guys that are getting crab and shark and, and the stuff that we all love to eat. And uh, that's not boring. In fact, one of, I forget which one, but one of those jobs is considered like the most dangerous job in the world. Now, these guys were somewhere in between those two. They weren't just casting out a line. They were throwing these heavy drag nets out into the water and then pulling it back in. And they would have done this all night over and over. So imagine going to the gym and working out your arms and your triceps and your back over and over all night. And they're exhausted. They, we'll find out in a minute. They didn't catch anything that night. Now, they come back. They, they beach their ships uh, on the shore They go to get some breakfast, and uh, they have to clean their nets so they can put them back in the boat so they can go out fishing the next night. Verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, who we'll learn was Peter, he asked him, Jesus asked Peter to put his boat out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. So what was happening is the crowd was pressing in on Jesus, so he went out on the boat because his voice would carry better over the waters. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. He says, Simon, let's go fishing. Come on, let's go out. And Simon's thinking, I'm exhausted. I haven't slept. Every good fisherman knows this is not the right time to go catch fish. Who is this guy? But Simon, so Simon says to him in verse five, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. What faith. 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They caught so many fish that their nets couldn't hold it. They signaled to their partners in the other boat, come out and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So many fish that they're beginning to sink. There's a lot of sushi. But when, when, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And we know in other gospels that Andrew, Peter's brother, was here also. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. Okay, three things, we'll be quick. Three things that are true of disciples. Three things that are true of a life worth sharing. And the first thing is this, disciples are leavers. Disciples are leavers. It ended in this story. They brought their boats to land and they left everything and they followed him. What were they leaving? What was Simon and Peter and Andrew and James and John when it says that they, they left their boats, and in the other gospels, they, they left their dad, they left their boats, and they followed after Jesus. Disciples are leavers. Here's some things that they were leaving. They were leaving everyone and everything they knew. I mean, that was their entire world. All their relationships were wrapped up in their family. All their relationships were, were wrapped up in the people that they worked with, and their identity was wrapped up in the work that they did. You know, nowadays, it's very unusual, actually, for a family, uh, as the family grows and gets older, to stay in the same community. We're not all the Andersons, where there's 11 grown children who all live in Syracuse by God's grace, or my wife's family, the Schwachs, where there's also 11 children who they all live within an hour of each other. It must be something about the number 11. Uh, if you want your kids to stay in town, you've got to have 11 of them. <laughs> How many people want to receive that word? More normal is as your kids grow older, they get jobs around the country and sometimes around the world. And you got to travel to see them. And of course, that's, you know, as a, as a parent, I have three girls under the age of 10. And so maybe we need to have eight more so they don't go anywhere. I'm just kidding, Aaron. We won't do that. Um, but I don't want them to go. But they do, right? So nowadays, it's not unusual for children to, to grow up and move far away. It just isn't. It's becoming increasingly normal. But not in this time. Not normal at all. When children grew up, they stayed. They didn't move away. They literally would build their living quarters onto the existing house of their parents. I mean, now there's another nightmare for some of you, but, but that, that is how it worked back then. So when, when, when Peter and, and Andrew and James and John say, we're going to leave this and we're going to go wherever Jesus goes, they were leaving uh, their family, their relationships. They were, they were leaving everything that was familiar and comfortable. They were, they were leaving, but disciples are leavers. We leave behind things. Here's another thing they were leaving. They only knew how to do one thing. I mean, they only knew how to do one thing. In this society, in this world, you did what your dad did. You apprenticed under your dad. So if your dad fished, you fished. And so all you knew, you didn't go to the local community college and try to learn something different. You didn't go apprentice under somebody else. You stayed right in your family. And so these four men, I mean, literally the only life skill they had, and we see this later in Acts when they're like, these are unlearned fishermen. Like, these guys don't have any education. The only real skill they had was fishing. And so when they left their nets and when they left their boats, it was a symbolic walking away from their source of security, their source of financial support, 
their source of strength because it was the one thing that they were good at. They left it behind. And then the other thing they were leaving was their life mission because their life mission was pretty clear. It was pretty simple. Every night, go out and catch fish. But Jesus kind of does a little play on words here, doesn't he, with, with Peter. He knows Peter's life mission is catch fish, so he says to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. Now, why did he have to say, don't be afraid? Don't be afraid because leaving stuff is scary, isn't it? Leaving stuff is difficult. Leaving behind, now, now let's pause and, and look at our own lives. What have you left to follow Jesus? What are you leaving to follow Jesus? And I'm not talking about 27 years ago when you decided to follow Jesus and you quit doing this and you quit doing that. I'm talking about this week. What this week are you leaving? What maybe do you still need to leave? Another way of thinking about this is, what's your primary source of identity? What's your primary source of security and strength? What are you holding on to that if you're really going to be a disciple, you need to leave? You need to not look to it. You need to not trust in it. You need to let it be behind you and not before you. What's your life mission? Making more money, making people happy, getting the respect of our parents. What has become your life mission? And Jesus says, I have a new mission for you. You're not catching fish, you're catching men. And there's a little play on words there where the most little translation is the idea that you're going to catch them alive. So Jesus is saying, catching men, Peter, not for death, but catching men for life. That's your new mission. And I think it works in two ways. Life as in they're going to experience the life of God, but also life as in for the rest of their lives, they're going to follow Jesus and do the same. What attitudes do you need to leave behind? What excuses? What addictions? What attachments? What habits? What beliefs? What masks? And what disguises? There's always things as disciples that we need to keep looking and saying, I'm willing to leave everything and follow you. You know what's really interesting about this story to me is that when, when, when Jesus says to Peter, follow me, and he leaves everything, that was the time not, that was the, be, that was the time not to leave. Think about it. They just had the best catch ever, like a monster catch. Peter's probably thinking, me follow you? How about you stay here? Like, you're clearly like the, the lucky one here. So Jesus, instead of me leaving this, because Jesus, did you notice? Can you, can, you, can you see? We have, literally, we have boats so full of fish that they're gonna sink if we don't do something about it. Jesus, do you know how much money we're gonna make here? Do you know how secure we're going to be? Do you know how wealthy? Do you know how good life can be for you and me and my brother and my friends if you'll just stay here? Let's just stay here. It was the worst time to leave. But Jesus said, follow me. And he left everything and followed him. Disciples are leavers. Secondly, disciples are learners. The Greek word for disciple is the word mathetis, or mathetis. And the most um, pure translation is simply the word learner. I mean, that's the simplest definition of what a disciple is. A disciple is a learner. And there's two things we see in this story. We see that they learn in two ways, and so should you and I. They learn by listening to Jesus' teachings from the boat, but they also learn by sharing life together in the boat. So they learn first, Jesus puts the boat out, he teaches, they're listening. And something changes in Peter's heart when he, when he's Peter's heart when he hears Jesus' teaching. And here's how we know why, or here's how we know how something changed. When Jesus says, go put your, let's go fishing again, what Peter should have said to him is, you're crazy. You're not, you, you've never fished this lake. You don't know anything. But the first thing Peter says to him, even though he expresses his doubt, he says the word master. 
So there's something that Peter has learned just in listening to the teachings of Jesus that he's already begun to shift in his mind and realize Jesus is not just another teacher. There's something special about him. He calls him master. And so he learns by listening to lessons from the boat. And this is the word when we talked about making disciples and sharing our lives intentionally and generously. This is the adverb intentionally. How are we intentionally positioning ourselves to be learners? If we're going to be disciples, we have to be learners. I mean, that's why many of you are here this morning. You're positioning yourself on Sunday mornings to come and to learn. But there's other environments. There's next steps you can take. We have grow classes on Wednesday night where you can come and you can learn more about scriptures. Or on Sunday mornings before service where you can come and learn more and do life together more and learn. But how are you positioning yourself to learn both inside this building? How are you positioning yourself to learn when you're outside of this building? What do you do during the week to feed your spirit? You know, what a, what, a, what a mistake to think that one Sunday morning a week of teaching is enough for our spirits. Listen, nobody does that physically. Nobody waits once a week and says, I don't need to eat Monday through Saturday. I'll eat a really big, hearty meal on Sunday. Doesn't work. You'll get sick. Something will happen to your physical body. But we do that spiritually. We just come in Sunday morning, have a big meal, and then the rest of the week... We don't feed ourselves. You're not a disciple. You're not learning. And there's less excuses today than ever to not have access to stuff. With the internet, now be careful because there's all kinds of teachers out there, so be wise. But with the internet, with podcasts, you know, the Trinity, this church has a podcast. You know, since we started the podcast, there's been over 12,000 listens to sermons in our church. And many of that is you guys, when you're serving in another part of the church on Sunday mornings and you miss the service, go back and listen that week. If you're traveling, you're not here, go back and, and listen that week. Or maybe you want to go back and, and listen again. Maybe you can't fall asleep at night. And you're like, Pastor David's sermons always put me to sleep. I'll, I, will, I will tune in. Doesn't matter. It's another listen. It keeps adding up our counts. I don't care why you're listening. No, I'm just kidding. It's a great tool to have. But listening to a podcast as you drive, listening to a podcast as you work out, listening to a podcast when you're alone, I just want to say this also. It's not the same as being in this room together, is it? It just isn't. It's a disembodied form of Christianity. And it's okay in seasons. It's okay in times. As it meets needs, it's great. I listen to podcasts all week long. I think it's important. But it's also important that we position ourselves with regularity to learn, not just from who has the microphone, but to learn from each other. There's something about the way we all respond to the teaching that strengthens us. So position ourselves. Be faithful. Be present. When you're here, lean in. Pay attention. Put your phone on silent and just ask God for the next 30 minutes, what do you have for me? Take it home with you. Listen to it on podcasts. Take notes and then teach it to others. And we're going to help you with this this morning, by the way. Uh, Pastor Bill Kirk, who's the assistant superintendent for the Assemblies of God and a part of our church, he's traveling this weekend, speaking and teaching in Staten Island. But he wrote this one-year devotional. It's 366 days. He even thought of the leap year. So it's 366-day devotional uh, for you, and he gave us enough copies for every family that's here this morning to take one of these home with you. Isn't that incredible? And so this is an incredible resource for you to have to take home with you today and begin using right away to feed your spirit, okay? So we learn by listening to lessons from the boat, but we also learn by sharing life together in the boat. And this is the word generously. How are you generously positioning yourself to share life with other people? 
There's so many opportunities to do that at Trinity. The men's group gathers once a month. This Thursday, they'll be here at the, uh, at the church for pizza and wings. If you can't gather around pizza and wings, something wrong with you, something wrong with you. Uh, the women are having something later this month, tea and testimony night. All this information is always on the website and on the bulletin. Sunshine Seniors are having a, a dinner and talent show the first Friday night in October. We're starting up dinner parties in November and December. So there's lots of opportunities that we're trying to facilitate for you to do life together. But what about on your own, in your own home? Who are you inviting into your home? And one of the qualifications of a deacon, according to Paul, is somebody who is hospitable in their home. Someone who opens up the doors to their home. Maybe there's different reasons why that's not practical for you. That's fine. Meet somewhere. Go to Starbucks. Go to Panera. But do life together. It's in sharing life together that we grow and we disciple one another. Discipleship doesn't simply happen in classrooms and sitting shoulder to shoulder in rows. That's one way it happens. But it's not the only way it happens. And next week we're going to talk about the different environments in which it happens. But one of the most important environments discipleship happens is just when you're breaking bread together when you're painting together, when you're working on a project together. Okay, so disciples are leavers, they're learners, and last this morning, disciples are lovers. In verse eight, when Simon Peter sees this whole thing go down, he falls at Jesus' knees and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now, here's what we learn. Loving Jesus starts with an awareness of our own sinfulness. Let me say that again. Loving Jesus, truly loving and appreciating who he is and what he's done, it starts with an awareness of our own sinfulness. In other words, it's the bad news first. If we don't understand the bad news, the depravity of our hearts, our propensity to sin, our tendency to wander, the fact that we love things more than him, the fact that we're not leavers, we're clingers, we hold on to stuff, the fact that we're not learners, we're stagnant, the fact that we're not lovers of God, we're lovers of self, until we really understand our own lostness, the depth of our lostness, we really won't understand and see and appreciate and love Jesus for who he is. And and if you're in church all the time, your greatest spiritual danger probably is not doing the wrong things uh, or being a bad person. Your greatest spiritual danger is believing in your own goodness. That's your greatest spiritual danger. Trying to rest in your own righteousness apart from Christ. Romans makes it clear there's a righteousness that comes from Jesus apart from the law. We can't manufacture it. You try for, you try, you, let's be honest, many of us try all day long. You try to manage your sin and manufacture your own righteousness. Manage your badness and manufacture your goodness and and, uh, tell me how it goes. And tell me how it works out and how you feel. I'll tell you how you'll feel. On days when you think you're doing well, you'll be spiritually proud of yourself. And on days when you're not doing well, you'll feel shame. You'll never approach the Father. You won't open up the scriptures. You won't read your Bible because there's too much shame to even look to the scriptures. The greatest danger for many of us is believing our own goodness. And here's what we learn about disciples. They're leavers, yes. They're learners, yes. But everything they've learned, here's what disciples do as the Spirit helps. The truth moves from their head to their heart. And in this text, in Luke chapter 5, this is Peter's very first encounter with Jesus, or one of his very first encounters with Jesus at least. But when we look at John chapter 21, we see one of Peter's very last encounters with Jesus, and they're eerily similar. They're very, very similar. Peter's fishing again. Even though he left it, he's gone back to it. 
Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. Peter's like, I don't know what this means. Let's go fishing. He goes back. He grabs those same nets that he left three and a half years ago. He goes out. Maybe Peter's thinking, this is the rest of my life. At least I'm done with it. At least I know this. At least I'm good at this. This is my plan B. The whole thing with Jesus didn't work out the way I thought it would, but I still got this. We all have that tendency at times in our lives to go back to things, to turn back to things. And Peter's out there again, he's fishing, and Jesus walks on the shore again and says, hey, did you guys catch anything? It's like deja vu. No, nothing. Throw your nets on the right side. They throw their nets on the right side. They can't even get, they can't even get the fish into the boat. It was so much that they couldn't haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And then John says, it's Jesus. Peter, hearing that it was Jesus, jumps into the water. It's, I mean, how can this not be deja vu for Peter? Again, throwing his nets out at Jesus' command only to find more fish. And then in verse 15, one of the most beautiful scenes in the Gospels, Jesus restores Peter If you don't know Peter's story, Peter has a tremendous failure right before Jesus goes to the cross where he denies him three different times despite being warned by Jesus less than 12 hours before that he would do it. In verse 15, I don't know what Peter would have carried in his heart. I don't know what that was like for him, but I'm sure those were hard days, especially between Friday and Sunday morning. I'm sure those were really hard days for Peter. But even after he saw Jesus again, there still was an issue in his heart. In verse 15, it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you you love me more than these? I know you're a lever. For three and a half years, you've been a learner. But Jesus is saying, are you a lover? Do you love me more than these? We don't know for sure what these means, but one of the things it probably means is I can see Jesus just kind of extending his hand to the boats, to the, to the nets, to the, to the lake, saying, Simon, do you love me more than all this? The stuff that you left, do you love me more than that? And then in verse 19, he asks him that three times, which is sort of symbolic of the three times Peter denied Jesus. And then the story ends with this in verse 19. And Peter says to him, you know, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. And in verse 19, after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. Again, it's like a recalling. It's like a recommissioning. I mean, Peter's like, I, I said yes to following you three and a half years ago, remember? Same situation on a shore, next to boats, next to nets. I already said I would follow you, but Jesus is calling to him again, follow me. And he's calling to us this morning. I, it doesn't matter how long you followed him. He's calling you again this morning. He's saying, follow me. Don't get so distracted doing all these other things and forget the one thing you've been called to do, make disciples. Think of how differently that, those, that phrase, follow me, sounded to Peter this time than it did the first time. The first time it probably sounded like, oh, adventure, something cool, something interesting. I wonder what it's going to be like. But this time Peter knew what it was going to be like because he'd, he'd seen his Savior, he'd seen his Lord crucified. Peter knew that if I follow you, I'm, gonna, I'm really following you through your suffering to the cross where historians say Peter died crucified upside down on a cross, refusing to die the same way Jesus did because he felt unworthy of doing so. And Peter followed him all the way to the cross. Why? Because he was a lever, because he was a learner, and because he was a lover. He settled in his heart, Jesus, I love you more 
than all these things. There's all sorts of things in our lives we have to be willing to ask ourselves, do I love Jesus more than that? Do I love Jesus more than the health of my family members? Do I love Jesus more than success in my career? Do I love Jesus more than being respected and noticed and approved of and being right and being seen as smart and being known as this or that? Do I love Jesus more than all of that? And if you're a lever, if you're a learner, and if you're a lover, well, that's the first step of making disciples. That's a life worth sharing. Live a life worth sharing. Be a lever, be a learner, be a lover. And then next week, we're going to start talking about what does it look like to share that life generously and intentionally. Let's pray together this morning.